Good morning. We're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at the life of a man who is very close to the Lord. In fact, if you look through Scripture, you're kind of hard-pressed to people who are closer. We're going to look at the life of the Apostle John. John was a man who accomplished many things for the Lord. If you just look inside your Bible, you can see he penned three epistles under his name. He penned the book of Revelation, and he penned one of the Gospels under his name. He was an elder. The Apostle Paul, when looking at him, said he seemed like a pillar to him. And he was one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And there was a title that he was known by in the Gospel of John. He was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're going to look in the next, couple, in the next few Sundays at how really John knew the love of Christ in a special way, in a way that the other apostles did not know. And having that kind of knowledge, having that knowledge of the Lord's love, I think John was a very loving man himself. In fact, I think he would probably very much enjoy being in his presence because he would feel loved. But he wasn't always this way. Actually, it's relatively late in the Gospel of John that he refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. Let's turn for a moment to Mark chapter 3. Before he was called that, he had a very different title that showed a very different character that he used to have. Just one verse. This is verse 17, chapter 3. This is uh, introducing the 12 apostles, and Mark refers to James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, why was he called that? Well, when you think thunder, you think of a low, loud, rumbling sound. It's not something pleasant to hear. It's something that causes one to be startled, to shudder. Now, the early John and his brother James, they, might, they may not have been unloving or, or unkind, but they may have been a little rough around the edges, loud and hot-tempered. And we're going to look at an instance later where we see the flaring tempers of James and John. The first clear appearance of John is when the Lord Jesus first calls him in his service to be one of his disciples. Let's just turn back a page to Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. Just read a few verses there. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers, become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now we see here John was a fisherman, 
by trade. He was not in a high-class occupation. And we see later in the book of Acts, when we have uh, the Pharisees examining John and Peter, they look at John and Peter, and they see untrained and uneducated men. At the same time, though, John was not a poor man. His father Zebedee in this passage is mentioned, is mentioned as having hired servants. So evidently they were wealthy enough to have hired help on their fishing boat. And later in the Gospel of John, John mentions twice that uh, he has some high connections in society. He mentions that he was known to the high priest, and it was this acquaintance that allowed him to follow the Lord Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest after he had been arrested. And it was also a connection that allowed him to ask that Peter be allowed into the courtyard also. So I see John here in the situation um, back when he's, when he's a fisherman. He actually had a lot going for him. It would have been natural for him to perhaps uh, take up his father's business. And from a worldly perspective, it might have had a certain appeal. He could have inherited the family business and uh, hired more servants, purchased more boats, earned even more. John and his brother could have had a lot going for them, and it would have been an easy and profitable path for them to go on. Now, some of us here, we might be tempted in the same way. Maybe you have your own business. Maybe you're in a well-established company. And maybe some things have happened that have been good at work recently. Maybe you've gotten a recent promotion. Maybe you've gotten a recent pay raise. You think, well, if you just stay here a little longer, work a little harder here and there, you might just get another promotion, get higher up on the ladder. But then, but then let's say just that moment where it looks like you're going to attain that ambition, the Lord calls you into service for him. Maybe full-time service. What do you do? Now, the world tells us to make it big, to be the best, be on top, climb up the corporate ladder. And it doesn't just have to be work. There's so many other things that we can be ambitious for that take up so much of our time and energy. Maybe it's a talent you have. Maybe you want to be the best artist, be the best musician, be the best in your sport. We like to be recognized and highly esteemed in our field. Okay, well, let's say you do attain that ambition of yours. You do make it to the top. You get that job you've always wanted. You become rich. And then now what? thing is, those things we so often long for, that we invest so much, of our, so much of our energy, so much of our heart into, they're so temporary, really. When you think about, let's say you win this major tournament or a competition, or you become manager of this company. Then 100 years from now, are you really going to care that you became manager of this company or won this competition this year? Really, no one's going to care, including yourself, about what happens 100 years from now, whether you got the position or not. And this is what's going to happen to you if you become rich. This is from the book of James. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from chapter 1. 
If you become rich, you're going to pass away as a flower of the field. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. And then let's hear it from someone who actually did make it to the top. Someone who could say, actually say legitimately, I have attained greatness and I have excelled more than anyone else before me. That's going to turn a brief moment to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Just going to read a couple of verses. This is chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. This is King Solomon speaking at the, probably near the end of his life, looking at all he had accomplished in his lifetime. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled. And indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Really, the only things of any eternal profit or really any real profit are the things we do for the Lord. It says in Second Peter that you know, this earth and all the works that are in it. And when it refers to works, works refers to so many of the things that we invest in in the world, so much that we put our energy into in the world, all that's going to be burned up. But then compare that to what the Lord promises to reward those who follow him with. A crown of, you might receive a crown of glory that does not fade away or treasures in heaven Neither moth nor rust destroys. There's no comparison. So coming back to John, John was faced with a choice. He could could have either kept on going with being a fisherman or gone to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Now, some people think that John... uh, was an unnamed disciple who was with John the Baptist, staying with Andrew in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We don't know for sure. He's not yet referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But even if he was not that unnamed disciple, you know, no doubt after Andrew and Peter encountered the Lord Jesus for the first time, they would have gone back and told John about the Lord when they came back to their fishing boats. And John must have been thinking about the Lord Jesus for some time. Perhaps there were some days as he was cleaning his fishing nets, you know, maybe he was wondering, wasn't there something more to his life than fishing? Was this it? Maybe he thought something like, wouldn't it be awesome if I could serve the Lord? And so when the Lord does call him into service, it's a no-brainer. He was gone. And we see early on 
John was included in an especially tight circle of the disciples around the Lord Jesus. The Lord shared with them some experiences that some of the other disciples never got to see. We see, um, as um, actually Rick preached about this a few weeks ago, when uh, the synagogue's leader, when Jairus had his daughter restored to life, of all the apostles, only Peter, James, and John were allowed to come in to see what happened. And when Jesus was transfigured on the mount, again, only Peter, James, and John were on the mountain with him. Now, when John had chosen to follow the Lord, he left behind a lot of what the world had to offer. We do, however, see that he had an ambitious streak in his character. One thing, it's sad, but um, our, world, our worldly ambitions don't always leave us when we go into service for the Lord. They can still follow us into work we do for the Lord. Okay, maybe you've left behind your work ambitions, your career goals, your academic ambitions, but then maybe you are looking to be a great and recognized person in the church. You want to get noticed by people around you as being super spiritual or someone who really knows your Bible verses or who is a good teacher. And there's a danger that you might fall into of, instead of doing things from the heart, you might be doing things to get noticed. So you might, I mean, there's even uh, with teaching or, or exercising hospitality or evangelism, that's a danger. You might be doing it more to get noticed than from a genuine desire to serve the Lord. And we see the disciples falling into this. We've got to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We're going to read verses 46 through 50. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Then John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is for us. Now, I think some of your Bibles probably have verses 46 to 48 separated from verses 49 to 50 under two different subheadings. Mine actually does. And there really should not be a separation. These five verses are really all part of the same conversation, and they're all very connected. And considering it's significant that it's John who is answering the Lord Jesus, and considering what we see happen later, I think John was probably one of those fighting most aggressively for the greatest position. Now, it looks like when the disciples were arguing amongst themselves, the Lord was just out of earshot because in a parallel passage, we see that they kept silent when the Lord asked them what they were disputing about. But of course, the Lord's all-knowing. It says he perceived the thought of their heart. So he proceeds to set them straight. 
So you want to have greatness? You want to be great. Well, this is how you attain greatness. You want to put yourself in the humblest, least, lowest place possible so, so that you're looking up at everyone else instead of looking down. Instead of trying to associate yourselves with the high and mighty people of the world, instead you look for the opportunity to show kindness to someone who's low and humble, someone like that little child who's helpless. And then you're going to have greatness in the eyes of the person who really matters, the Lord himself. Verse 49, though, we see um, John acts almost like he didn't hear the Lord Jesus because right after the Lord tells the disciples of how to attain true greatness, John answers back and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. So what's the connection here? The problem is, John is still thinking about his, his own ambitions. And one of those things that comes with being ambitious is that often in the process of, process of trying to lift yourself up, of trying to elevate yourself, you end up putting other people down. That's why it looks like the disciples forbade this unnamed believer from casting out demons. There may have been some envy on the part of the, of the disciples when they saw this man casting out demons, maybe he cast out an especially difficult one. And the disciples, they, would like to, they wanted to think of themselves as that special group that the Lord especially was blessing. It's noticeable, John states they forbade the man not because he was not one of us, but because he does not follow with us. And we can get tempted to think of ourselves, too, as a group in a very special way, in an exclusive way. We can think of ourselves as the church, the only church where, we do th- where things are done right. And in the process, we would end up putting other believers down, other churches down. The dangers of being ambitious. Let's turn for a moment to 3 John. It's a tiny little book just behind Jude and Revelation. Now, many years later, John himself would have to confront a case of pride and ambition gone out of control. We're just going to read uh, from verse 9, just a couple verses. This is John writing, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Now, we don't know exactly where this church was that John was writing to. We don't know too much about it. But there are some things we can gather. It looks like this man, Datrophes, was some leader in the church. He had the authority to put people out of the church. It looks like he was an elder. 
that he wasn't acting like an elder should. Now, this was years and years after John had walked in the presence of the Lord Jesus, but I think John must have been reminded of that occasion all those years ago on the road when that dispute had arisen among him and the other apostles about who would be greatest. Maybe he saw something in diatrophies that reminded him of himself in that time long ago. Here was someone, here was someone he might have become if he had let his ambitions run unchecked. And this is what happens if you let your ambitions just go out of control. You end up just serving self. You end up only thinking about the good of yourself. And you end up putting other people down. You end up hurting other people. You don't want to be like this guy. Going back to John, let's turn back to Luke chapter 9. So right after this dispute on the road, we're going to just carry on in verse 51. We see James and John again. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to, des- to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, first, when we look at what James and John say, it looks like they're being pretty zealous for the Lord. But they're really not. What they're being here is they're being very hot-headed. They're indignant. They're thinking... How dare these people reject the Lord Jesus? And this is one passage where that title, Sons of Thunder, really comes out. But what we see, how we see James and John acting, it's really an attitude that we can easily take up. Have you ever gotten angry at someone when witnessing to them? It can happen, especially when we see someone perhaps not speaking of the Lord Jesus in a good way, or it could be if we're being treated rudely, we'll get upset. But then you have to ask yourself the question, are you really being angry for the Lord's sake, or are you being angry because you feel like you're not being listened to and you're not being respected? Now, it could have been that James and John were among those messengers sent out to, to the Samaritan village, and maybe they weren't treated the most, in the most polite fashion. Maybe they were a little upset. But with James and John, there's no love for the lost in their hearts here, and so the Lord rebukes them. And it was a rebuke that really stayed with John, because we don't ever see him making a suggestion like this again, or like in the previous section where he forbade 
that unnamed believer cast out demons. And later in his life, we can see that John could write in a way that shows he really understood the Lord's love for the lost and his coming to earth. It's in 1 John, I'm just going to read a few verses uh, from chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. John would say, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, not long after this, not long before Jesus actually entered Jerusalem, we see James and John again. We're going to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 10. We're going to read verses 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Then he said, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand, and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We can. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. James and John here are really thinking about the Lord Jesus in his glory. That's when he's, that is when he's glorified as the true king of Israel, and when Israel is set up as the kingdom on the earth. And they want to be right next to the Lord, there at his right and left side. Now we see from a parallel passage that their mom put them up to this too. And it's very tempting for parents to be ambitious for their own kids as well. And James and John's mom was one of those women who ministered to the Lord Jesus and his disciples. Now, I don't have any children, but I could picture if the Lord did bless me with some godly children, I might be tempted to take some excessive pride in them. You know, I might see my kids um, actively involved in ministry, maybe leading people to the Lord, maybe leading Bible studies, and I would think to myself, That's my, those are my kids. But then it's easy for those thoughts to go on not such a godly path. 
I might start feeling a sense of entitlement from my kids. Like I might say, well, I might think to myself, well, I've done a lot to serve the Lord. My kids are doing a lot to serve the Lord. Don't they deserve the best? What's interesting, though, is you know, the Lord does not rebuke them. The Lord does not rebuke James and John for the, requ- the request they make. Now, we saw in that previous passage in, in Luke, and we, we can see a number of other times, the Lord rebukes his disciples for their arguing amongst themselves over who would be greatest. And he rebukes them even um, just before he's arrested, when they're still arguing amongst themselves. And looking at this passage at first, it looks like John's up to his old aspirations of trying to be the greatest of the apostles. So then why doesn't the Lord rebuke him? Let's take a look again at what the request was and how the Lord answered. Now, did James and John really understand what the Lord meant by that question, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Probably not. I mean, if they thought back to some of the Lord's earlier words, they might have remembered him speaking in an agonizing way about a future baptism he was to have. I'm just going to read a verse from Luke chapter 12. The Lord said, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Now, probably from how the Lord asked it, James and John had the vague idea that um, this entails some form of trial, of suffering, of hardship. But, of course, they had no idea what the Lord was going to face on the cross. But they were kind of committed that they were kind of committed at this point. And when the Lord asked them that question right in front of all of the other disciples, they would look kind of sheepish if they said, I'm not sure, or I don't know. And anyway, they would like to think that whatever challenge was, was thrown their way, that they were up to it, that they could handle it. But we actually see the original desire from which the request of James and John came, it was a good one. Because if it had been a desire for personal power, wealth, influence, the Lord would have rebuked them because he does that with the disciples and the other, other times. And this is what James and John were really after. They wanted a closeness to the Lord himself. Let's say, let's say you found everything in your life that you've always wanted. You've found what brings you the most joy, the most satisfaction, the most fulfillment in life. And all you want to do is get closer to the source of that joy fulfillment and satisfaction. And in the case of James and John, they found all this in the Lord Jesus. They wanted to be on his right and left hand to be near him because of who he was. 
Now James and John, they were both still ambitious, but now their aim had become to be close to the Lord as possible. And we don't have time to go into it next week, but we're going to see next week, we see John in that close position, leaning on the breast of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to go over next week, wonderful things he found in that position of closeness. Now, I've spent a good amount of time talking about the dangers of being ambitious, but actually, I just do want to clarify, it's actually not wrong to be ambitious. Now, what do you mean? You're probably thinking, what do you mean by that? I've just spent all this time talking about how dangerous it is. But, um, well, it depends on for whom your ambitions are directed. If you're being ambitious for self, for self-advancement, well, that's going to lead nowhere. That's going to lead into all the dangerous situations this went over. But then if you're ambitious for the Lord, that's a wonderful thing. So how is one ambitious for the Lord? Well, as the Lord Jesus did, we have to redefine our ambitions. Because a believer's ambitions should be really the opposite of the world's ambitions. Just looking back to that passage, the Lord said, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. So when I look at that, that means there's no more doing of what I want. I have to aim to put myself last. <laughs> put everyone else ahead of me. And as for doing great works, perhaps the Lord does have great works for me to do. But I need to be doing them in a way that he gets noticed, not so, not so I get noticed. I want to be invisible so that he can be visible. And I can't be looking to make it my main ambition to get that promotion from my boss or get that pay raise. Instead, I want to hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Again, those things we receive from the Lord, they're so much more real so much more permanent than the world's honors and recognitions. And they're really the only things we can call eternal achievements. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your great love for us, and we pray that you would put into our hearts that we would be focused on you, that we would long to just be nearer to you and forget ourselves and forget our own ambitions, but instead strive to be ambitious for you and what you want. I do pray this in your name.